Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT, and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level Low power frequency radio modulation The big sound from underground another pirate station No change without struggle No one in power ain't giving up nothing No change without struggle No one in power W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinor. This was a little bit of Sun Showers by M.I.A., who is originally from Sri Lanka. And we started with that because on July 9, 2022, thousands of people in Colombo, Sri Lanka's capital, rushed into the presidential palace and chased out former President Gotabaya Rajapaska, forcing him to flee to Singapore. And we are going to... uh, investigate what has brought to that, how the situation is currently, what the future might hold for Sri Lanka. With me to do that is Sharika Tiranagama. She is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Stanford University and President of the American Institute for Sri Lankan Studies. She published extensively on Sri Lanka, including the book In My Mother's House, Civil War in Sri Lanka, and thank you, Sharika, for joining us today. And I, I have to say that the title of your book is um, very um, interesting. Um, hopefully we'll get to talk a little bit about that. But um, let's start with um, just where is Sri Lanka? Um, what is its history, very briefly? Uh, what's its geography? What's the makeup of the population? What languages are talked there? The the um, the religions, um, briefly, of course. <laughs> Hi, Esti. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm sort of delighted to come and talk about Sri Lanka. It's for me. It's really important to tell listeners about Sri Lanka because the really momentous things that have been happening this year and it hasn't been covered that much in the international media and so you know I I really welcome the opportunity to talk a little bit about it so I mean if you start from the very basics Sri Lanka is a small island Um, well it's not that small it's an island off the coast of um, um, India though it's it's though it's an independent country and even in colonial times it was what was called a a crown colony so it wasn't part of India in that way it's um it's it's a very beautiful place it's one of the longest colonized places in South Asia it started with the Portuguese conquest in 1505 followed by the Dutch and then finally the British from 1796 until independence in 1948 and it's a very mixed population because it's been an island on the kind of world scene for a long time it was you know it was part of Sinbad's seven journeys and so on it's a very very mixed and complicated place and 
some of the situation that comes out now is to do with the nature of that mixity and that complexity and the kind of simple, the simple answers of how ethnicity conflict have worked since since independence. And so there, there's some different stories that we can tell about Sri Lanka. I'm going to tell, let, let's start with kind of two, um, maybe. So one way you can think about what's happened in Sri Lanka since 1948 is that you can think about Sri Lanka as a state and it has a really comprehensive welfare state. It's got free education, free healthcare, subsidized basic essentials. These are what the protesters are holding to, you know, trying to hold on to. And this is the reason that Sri Lanka has such a high literacy rate and such excellent social indicators. And it's had a variety of different governments since and you know a kind of more free market turn from the 1970s and when i moved to the us from two countries sri lanka and britain with free health care i was quite shocked actually because that's not we've had free health care in sri lanka since the 1950s and at the same time as that story since the 1970s the state has been comprehensively militarizing it's been arresting and detaining people it's been expanding its state security personnel and in addition to the former prison system, you have all kinds of gray zone camps, the detention centers. So why is that? Why do you have this kind of welfare state, which is also an incredibly militarized state since the 1970s? And for that, you have to turn to Sri Lanka's other story, which is about ethnicity, about religious uh, communities. And there, so Sri Lanka's kind of the majority ethnic community in Sri Lanka are Sinhalese, and the majority of the Sinhalese are Buddhists with a kind of um, with a Christian minority and they're, they're Theravada Buddhists which you know sort of links Sri Lanka to Thailand and Myanmar um, and Buddhism is really central to Sinhalese identity and you know it was enshrined in the 1972 constitution then by then parliament which said that uh, Buddhism was a national religion of, of Sri Lanka. Now the Sinhalese also speak the major uh, the language Sinhalese as well, and then you have a variety of minority communities who are of different religious and ethnic makeup, and a majority of whom speak Tamil. Not all of the minority communities speak Tamil, but I would say a large majority of them. So you can think of them as Tamil-speaking communities. One of the major Tamil-speaking communities are Sri Lankan Tamils. And they've been central to the civil war. They're predominantly Hindu, with about 15% who are Christian, both Catholic and Protestant, rising evangelicalism. Unlike the Sinhalese, while Hinduism is the majority religion, until recently, sort of Tamilness across religion has been more important because Christians and Catholics, I mean, Protestants and Catholics have been part of this kind of Tamil umbrella. I mean, some of that is changing, but that, it wasn't, it, it, it's a little different from how Buddhism is central to the Sinhalese. And then you have um, Sri Lankan Muslim minorities. They are also very important civil war. And they're um, both an ethnicity and a religion, and they're Tamil speaking. So it's more like how Jews would consider themselves. So you can be a non-practicing Muslim, um, as a, but still be considered, but you are still ethnically a Muslim. And then alongside that, you have another major um, ethnic minority, which are called Hill Country Tamils. And they're the descendants of Indian indentured laboring communities brought by the British to work on the tea plantations. And they're also Tamil speaking. They're predominantly Hindu with a growing Christian minority. So you can see, and I haven't even listed Sri Lanka's other minorities, but you can already see yeah. the complexity of the fact that the ethnic minorities really matter. And so when you when you look at that profile, um, what you see is that you can also tell a story about Sri Lanka, which is alongside this welfare state and this kind of growing sort of social provisions, is there's always been a question about who is it supposed to be for? And the minorities have not been considered the ideal beneficiaries, though they have also been beneficiaries, they're not being considered the ideal beneficiaries of this new nation that emerged in 1948. And so you've had a lot of ethnic discrimination against particularly Sri Lankan um, Tamils. So um, a variety of acts of legislation against um, minority communities. But 
accompanied by lots of violence. So you've had anti-Tamil riots in 1956, in 1957, in 1981, Right? So there's always been an organized um, element to that. And this is what really, in some ways, this fueled the civil war. So you had all these militant groups that came up in northern and eastern Sri Lanka, which are considered minority areas. So that those are the Tamil-speaking areas of Sri Lanka. Though people live all across the island, the majority of um, Sri Lankan Tamils and Muslims still live in the northern and eastern belts. Mm-hmm. Let me um, let me ask you another uh, background question. Um, you noted three colonizing European countries in in succession, and um, usually they went into places because um, there were natural resources there that could be extracted and taken away from the country itself and its people what what are the natural resources and other um, economic drivers of Sri Lanka you mentioned tea and I remember as a child um, tea from Ceylon right uh, and an older name of Sri Lanka um, was considered the best so what what else is there yeah I mean that's a <laughs> that's a long extensive question also about colonialism I try to give you a more concise answer I mean Part of it is that Sri Lanka has historically been known as a spice island. It's where, so the Dutch, in fact, were in cinnamon, true cinnamon is from Sri Lanka, which is why it's called Sinanicus, um, its Latin name. And the Dutch empire grew rich on Sri Lankan cinnamon, actually, um, um, for example. So there's been, a, Sri Lanka has always been a place that had all these various kind of natural goods, but not in terms of crops in terms of spices and until the age of the the steamship and Sri Lanka had a port Trincomalee which is the only sheltered port from the monsoon in that kind of Indian Ocean range so it was considered strategically very important for a variety of um, different European powers to have control of um, of Trincomalee so it's it's just been a very important place in terms of world global trade they you know, which is why also the arabs came there and so on it's it's always been known as a place mm-hmm. in 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 which which it was important which is strategically important also now the you know, the british i mean of course the age of the steamship reduced the importance of a port like trincomalee but the british did plant first coffee plantations and then tea plantations in sri lanka and you know there's been a variety of different sort of crops from there so it it has and you know pearls came from Sri Lanka so it's it's sort of um it's it's always been governed a little separately from India for, under British colonialism so it wasn't amalgamated into um the the British um, colonial government in India it was governed like Singapore was as a crown as a crown colony mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so um Before we get to the events, the recent events and the situation, um, currently, um, I I just want to stay with colonizing um, or being a colonized place um, a little bit longer, because I've been thinking a lot recently about... um, the way colonization has affected countries way beyond the time that they were colonized, right? It's like war doesn't end when war ends. Uh, it leaves trauma that goes down the um, the generations, and it seems that um, colonization to a large degree is the same. And uh, one thing I I see is that a lot of countries that were colonized and got independence and, you know, there was often a big and long um, struggle before the end of um, 
uh, um, colonized rule, they um, haven't necessarily been able to have good governance, um, to be good for all of its citizens. Um, talk about that, you know, whether that's correct or not for, for Sri Lanka and, and how has that been manifested? Yeah, so, you know, so let me then, as they just get back to how I began, I mean, I didn't really talk about the civil war, though I think it's important to talk about the Yeah, please. The war, but if you think about what I said, you know, I was, as I said, Sri Lanka's had a comprehensive welfare state since the 1950s, right? So in many ways, this the way in which Sri Lanka has been talked about is as a kind of outlier in South It's had excellent social indicators. It's had you know, seemingly free and fair elections for many decades. So it's it's not actually always talked about as a, um, as a kind of struggling in that sense, but it's militarized. When you, you have to put it together, you have to put together the welfare state and its kind of provision for its population alongside the militarization, which has escalated since the 1970s. And that really does have to do with um, the way in which um, the kind of the way in which anti-minority um, um, policy and also the dealing with domestic with the insurrections also from the south from the Sinhalese really shaped the Sri Lankan state. Now, if you want to talk about the effects of colonialism on on Sri Lanka, I mean the effects are profound. We could start with in so many different ways, and we could we could talk about it, but maybe. For the sake of um, brevity, we could just talk about it in relation to ethnicity, and and how you can see the kind of colonial history in our contemporary ethnic conflict. Though I am also, um, I I want to talk about that history, but also talk about how independence of Sri Lankan state has also taken turns it didn't need to have because there is an agency also in post-colonial militarization as well. So really, Sri Lanka is a really mixed island, as I said, and it had a very, it you know, so what we see now in terms of modern ethnic communities does have its um, roots in how in the colonial period, particularly in the British colonial period, groups were categorized. So there's always been different kinds of um, ways of categorizing groups in, in Sri Lanka. There have been communities. It's not like everything was invented 200 years ago at all. These are long-standing communities, long-standing religious identities, and so on. But um, there's always been a lot of fluidity and bound, you know, movement between different um, groups. And, you know, how you were categorized, you know, could also change. And what happened in the colonial period was that the British were really into Victorian race theory. They really sort of wanted to see the populations they governed as, okay, there's these, this ethnic group, there's this ethnic group, these are racially different, they're like this, they have this characteristics, the Sinhalese are like this, the Tamils are like this. But more than just thinking that they linked ethnicity to, um, to rule. So in order to be represented, when they did bring in limited representation, it was through ethnic community. So the Sinhalese would have an ethnic representative who stand for the Tamils would have, and so on. The Sinhalese are actually divided into high country and low country. So for about 100 years before universal suffrage um, uh, came in, Sri Lanka's um, political representation was based on your representation of an ethnic community. And that really, that linking of ethnicity to politics, to power, to representation, really did leave a very long trace on the island. So you know, so when we have universal suffrage, we have mass party democracy, um, I mean, you know, kind of um, 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 popular democracy also after independence, but you have a majority community, actually, who are, who are Sinhalese, and profoundly so, there's two thirds, you know, like around 70% of the population. And so you see that translated into a very kind of majoritarian sort of democracy. And in the 1972 constitution, a lot of the protections of minorities were taken away. And 
you know, so that's w- one way, for example, you can see. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, my guest is Sharika Tiranagama, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Stanford University and President of the American Institute for Sri Lankan Studies. If you have uh, relevant questions or comments, you're welcome to join us at 608 608- Two five six two thousand and one extension nine. You can join us on social media at Word Talk on Twitter or a public affair on Facebook. So um, let's jump right back to the events of July. Um, what brought that about? What what makes thousands of people um, go into the uh, presidential palace and uh, basically oust the president? Yeah, so I mean, I let's it 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 really relates to there's there's something very specific about this moment in terms of the economic collapse of Sri Lanka, and then the, then I hope I have time to talk about how amazing the protests were in terms of how they went against this, how they were in fact multi-ethnic. Uh, go ahead and incorporate that. that into the answer. Absolutely, yeah, that's interesting. And, because I think we need to talk about, actually we do need to talk about the war and the end of the war and what happened and and the rising anti-Muslim riots that we've seen in Sri Lanka since 2000. And also anti-Tamil, right? Um, I mean, do you want to, do you want to, we can start with that. We can, oops, I, I'm sorry, my uh, phone is supposed oh. to be off. Um. <laughs> I think maybe if I just explain a little bit about... Um, the war and and who the Rajapaksas are. So just to understand for your listeners, who was the president that Sri Lanka in fact managed to oust, right? So there, it's a family of politicians called the Rajapaksas. And Gotabaya Rajapaksa, who was the current president, and Mahinda Rajapaksa, who's the current prime minister, who was the current prime minister until their ousting this year, are brothers. And the important thing to know about them is that they, I mean, they were not the only of their brothers in parliament. There were five of them in, um, in the ruling regime and, in, and one of their sons. They're a family that's really controlled Sri Lankan politics since the end of the civil war because their claim to fame is their very, very brutal suppression of the civil war. So when the civil war ended, Mahinda Rajapaksa was then the president and his brother, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, who's this ousted president, was his defense secretary. And so they have won numerous, they have won their elections on saying, we, we defeated the LTT, we put down the conflict, we're here to provide you security, and we're, pro- you know, and, uh, and, you know, we'll keep you safe. And since the end of the war, we've had these really big anti-Muslim riots. So a new minority were now subject to all kinds of campaigns and discrimination against them. And the Rajapaksas really rode that. So in some ways, this uh, their ousting is the final turning away of the public from a kind of ethnic majoritarian militarized logic that was how they won elections and and that is a very significant thing now how did we how did we get here so the other thing that the rajapaksas did and even the government that came after them um, uh, did was to also engage in all kinds of um, very risky economic um, practices over the last few years. So what Sri Lanka has seen is not only, it's seen a lot of big white elephant kind of infrastructure projects, lots of risky borrowing, especially from international um, sort of sovereign funds um, and um, corruption. So, and some of that, these kind of risky economic practices were were able to be cushioned for a while by Sri Lanka's kind of profound earnings from tourism, for example, you know, because, you know, that's one of its major economies. Sri Lanka depends on both tourism and remittances from its hard, hardworking, you know, uh, workers who work all over in the Middle East and so on and send money home. It depends on those things. But the pandemic really shut that off. And, and, you know, and Sri Lanka's, um, and that, that's when it really started to struggle. So all these policies, which were anyway pushing Sri Lanka to the brink, 
the corruption, the, the borrowing, the big infrastructure projects that didn't necessarily result in completion. They start, Sri Lanka started running out of money in its foreign exchange accounts, in its dollars. And then the Sri Lankan state started doing increasingly desperate things. It was refusing to go and renegotiate its, its debt or restructure um, from last year, which it, it should have started to, to think about what, what the consequences were. It did things like it ran out of, um, it decided to suddenly, it decided to make the whole country go to organic fertilizers, a kind of greenwashing, not because it truly believed in organic fertilizers, but because it ran out of money to buy um, fertilizers. And it didn't subsidize farmers for that transition, which meant that our harvests have been terrible. So there's a huge food crisis in, in Sri Lanka because the harvests have failed because of these sorts of, and people grew angrier and angrier. It, um, fuel started running out. I was in Sri Lanka in, in January and it was, it was already getting very, very worrying. By February, you had rolling power cuts of like 10, 12 hours a day for, for people. Food prices by May had gone up 40%. Um, fuel, um, because of, uh, fuel costs meant that, you know, it was impossible to fill your car. There was rationing for school buses. How were people supposed to get to work? Medicine prices went up dramatically. I'll give you an example. My father's undergoing um, chemotherapy. Um, in, in May, his, uh, his oral chemotherapy was um, already quite expensive. It was 22,000 Sri Lankan rupees. Three weeks later, it was 60,000 Sri Lankan rupees, right? Now, so this is unbearable for any, any country this Sri Lanka, Sri Lankans were starving, and they directly laid the blame at the Sri Lankan state. And as this went on, the Sri Lankan government refused to concede that things were very, very bad. And you know, Sri Lankans were protesting because of this welfare state. They also, you know, as a population, Sri Lankan thinks that we deserve to have subsidized basic essentials. This is a you know, the cost of living and decent living standards are important for human dignity. They're important for for all of us. Days, and you know, and so the mobilizations began. It began in a small way in January with small groups of protesters doing silent vigils in various places. But it really picked up by March, and then you saw these bigger and bigger groups coming together. Then you had the takeover of various protest sites across the country, but also especially in in an area in the heart of Colombo, which is a beach, Gulf Face Green. And now it's a beach which historically has been a place where ordinary families come and stroll and fly kites. It's a very known public space. You know, people who have grown up in Colombo, I haven't, but even I as an adult have done that. It's a place that people know that ordinary families go. Increasingly, it's been difficult to do that because the hotels and the embassies and so on have circled that area. So it's like this public space in the middle of enormous wealth. And the government secretariat is right opposite. That is the site that then people decided to reclaim and reoccupy, though there have been sites across the, across the country. Mm. And so a lie, you know, people, you know, came and camped out there. There were libraries there were, and there were soup kitchens. There was mass feeding of people because there was real need actually for, for food. So it has been an important, a lot of conversations which I thought would never happen, have happened. So at first, a lot of minorities were a little bit nervous about joining in because of this history of conflict and this fear of how it could be. But as the protests have go, gone on, it's, it's been quite amazing to see that there haven't been any religious or ethnic conflicts emerging at the protest site. And, um, and there has been the possibility to have some conversations. So maybe, maybe it's not like somehow Sri Lankans overnight have turned into non-racist people. It's, it's not quite like that. But what it shows us is that when, when you had all these anti-Muslim riots at the end of the war and so on, the key ingredients in that were not just that people did it, but that there were organized radical 
Buddhist monk orders involved in it. You had the state involved in it. In one mosque, it was actually the state security forces, the STF in Digana that went into one of the mosques. And when you take away organized forms of incitement, of anti-minority feeling, and because all the protests of the campaigning against the state, you don't see that kind of collective violence. You see everyday racism, you see miscommunication, you see all, but you don't have active politicians organizing violence against minorities. Mm -hmm. So in the protests, for example, in March when they started, it was Ramadan. So a lot of Muslim protesters broke their fast in the protests and the other protesters, um, you know, were respectful of that. And in, you know, and they also fed other protesters too. Eid was celebrated collectively for the first time in May ever in southern Sri Lanka, a group of mixed protesters, a small group albeit, but both Sinhalese and Tamil um, commemorated the loss of thousands of Tamils at the end of the war. That has never happened before, right? So we've seen these kinds of things, even in small ways, emerge through the protests. And the protests, the international media largely ignored them, even though there were thousands of people coming out every day to say that we're not going to take this anymore and we're going to bring down this oppressive government and we demand our MPs to do something for us. There were um, boards with all names of all 225 MPs and people were like, no, we want them to actually do. The politicians were trying to catch up with the protests and they said, we are not going to go until we get rid of this, this, um, this president. Mm -hmm. And that is why people stormed the presidential palace. It had been there had been so many days, months at that point, of peaceful protest, and then they stormed the presidential palace because they said, he has to go. How is it that politician is so shamelessly hanging on day after day when you have peaceful protests against him day after day? And, you know, Sri Lankans are starving. Yeah, yeah. And and I just want to know that this is why we do the kind of show that we do, because, um, as you said, the majority of media are ignoring a lot. <laughs> and uh, we want to uh, make that, at least some of it, known. So um, I want to ask you about the role of the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, in um, the failing economy of Sri Lanka. I know that the country uh, got loans from the IMF, and I also know that uh, pretty much everywhere in the world when when um, a country gets loans from the IMF, um, the consequences are dire for the majority of people. How, how does it look in uh, Sri Lanka? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a concern because the Sri Lankan state left it so late um, in in uh, beginning negotiations with the uh, with the IMF, and it left it so late that we have very little leverage. We're in a really desperate state, and that is really worrying for Sri Lankans for the long term future. That we have very little leverage with the IMF because we're because we need to have leverage, because outside of this economic collapse, the IMF has had certain priorities in Sri Lanka that it's been very insisted on for a long time. So the IMF has ide would ideally like Sri Lanka to, in fact, privatize a large provision parts of its public um, welfare state, right? So, and this is something that is very unpopular in Sri Lanka. People don't want to um, have. Um, water prices go up. They don't want to necessarily have a fully, you know, like an expanded private university se university segment. There's a lot of, you know, public education in Sri Lanka and a belief in public education. They don't necessarily want, at the moment you have a public health care system and a private health healthcare too, but they kind of sit together and still public health care is very, very important. But, you know, people don't necessarily want that to the private healthcare to be strengthened at the expense of the public. So the, the, the long-term IMF priorities have been to sort of neuter Sri Lanka's welfare state and its subsidization of basic necessities. And now we come to it at a point where we have little leverage 
to push back against many of the demands that the IMF will have around restructuring. So this is a very complicated um, situation for us, you know, in, the, in that sense. And Sri Lanka owes a ton of debt to international sovereign funds. It owes, I mean, what's been written about most in the media is what it owes to China. And it does have a lot of loans from China. But it, it not only has loans from China, it also has loans from these international sovereign funds. So it's in a very uh, uh, complicatedly indebted situation. Yeah. Sounds again like in other countries, let's assume that at some point Sri Lanka gets um, a popular president and um, there are changes in governance. Uh, it will still be stuck with all these loans and uh, there'll be no way to um, really implement uh, policies that are supportive of the large majority of people. But that uh, takes me to asking you about the current president. So on July 21st, Ranil Wickremesanga, um, took over. Who who is he? How did he become president? And uh, what do people think about him? Well, you know, Ronald Vikramasinghe has been around for so long. I feel I was a teenager, and he was um, in power then too. So he, this is his um, fifth or sixth time, I think, at being um, prime minister. Um, prime minister. He's never been president. Um, before. What's quite shocking is that this election, he was actually um, voted out of um, parliament, the last election. He was nominated by his party through a list system because Sri Lanka has a kind of mixed, um, uh, it has a, a PR, so he was nominated by his party. And somehow this man who was, who lost his electoral seat, was elected by MPs, not by the population by being uh, as as acting pres- as president and who was he nominated acting president by by um, the outgoing president Gotabaya Rajapaksa so he's widely seen by a lot of people as um, as essentially an ally to the Rajapaksas even though he's from an opposing party now he's a scion of a very influential Sri Lankan um, uh, political family his um, uncle, J.R. Jawadna, was one of our former presidents, uh, the president who ushered in um, privatization into the Sri Lankan economy and oversaw some of the biggest anti-Tamil riots and installed uh, a presidential system. So Ranil Vikramasinghe, who's been in parliament since the late 70s, is no, is no newcomer. He was prime minister also under a previous president. So he, he's well known in the political scene. He's sometimes, um, he's well liked by um, the international uh, consensus because he's seen as a kind of Western English speaking elite genteel figure. But he really is somebody who's really scrabbled to stay in power at whatever cost and has done it for decades. And he has very, he's very, has very little scruples about staying in power, even when most of his party has kind of splintered around the fact that he hasn't relinquished um, power. So that is the person that we have currently as president, somebody who lost a popular election mm-hmm. and is now installed by Fiat and who the upper class and upper middle class think, okay, let's give him a chance because he's this English-speaking, well-spoken, sort of genteel person, but who has begun his um, presidency by instituting emergency rule. As I speak now today, a whole load of student protesters were arrested. We have bodies turning up on the beaches in Colombo. So his, his, since he has come, it's been a very depressing mode. He's shut down the protest site. They've tear-gassed the protesters. They've arrested so many yeah and it's not a good prospect really for a popular protest to end in this way right so um are the protests continuing and and if they are um do you think a change will happen sooner or later i did uh, read that the sri lankan military 
is um, second per capita only to Israel, which is to say there's a lot of military, there's a lot of police, and um, things can't be very safe when that is the case. So... Um, for the for the majority of of the population anyway so um yeah what where, where do you think this is all going um I can't um tell right now because I mean of course I and lots of people hope that protests will continue but you also can't ask people to put their lives at such risk um, as they are turning out. Right now, you know, to carry on peaceful protest when people are being arrested um, is is a, is, a, is a tall order. It's all very well for me to say that from from where I sit in is it sit in California. And you know this is actually one of the reasons that first uh, people said, "Oh, why aren't the Tamils protesting in the same way?" And it's like, well, because they're very afraid because Tamil, Tamils and you know minorities know that when the army and the military are used, they discriminately target. minorities in ways that are quite out of proportion they're very used to doing that so um, there was an, a, a, a renewed big protest um, I think guess it would be yesterday in Sri Lanka and the police um, kind of tear gassed the protesters and arrested a lot so that that doesn't bode well it means that in order to exercise your right of assembly and peaceful protest you have to be willing to sacrifice the Your, your your life in a way and that's you know and so I don't know what will happen and I really hope that there is some attention to the Sri Lankan government's use of repression against its, its protesters and and I think it's really important to draw attention to that because um, you know the future is very bleak for Sri Lanka regardless of the protest economically they're going to be in a bad place for at least four or five. years mm-hmm. and the protesters were exercising their right in the midst of this very bleak future to be collectively together to let you know to say these are our demands this is what we want for our future all of these things that are very important in a functioning democracy yeah and and, and, and yeah. like we already mentioned it's something that um, I mean you hear about Ukraine every day many many times um, I read um, a report about how people who were incarcerated in uh, Russian um, jails for two weeks were tortured and so on and so forth, uh, which granted, that is um, terrible, and that is human rights um, um, it, it's it's against human rights, right? and um, But this is happening in so many other places in the world and, and Sri Lanka is one of them. Why, why do you think it's not um, of import you know it doesn't seem to be important to um, other countries and to the media? Yeah, I mean good good question. <laughs> I would obviously like it to be more important and I you know I mean If I can take a little long way around it, you know this fact you mentioned about Sri Lanka's army, I think is especially significant. Sri Lanka has the second highest rate you know rate in the world in proportion to its population of dis- enforced disappearances, for example. Mm-hmm. And it has is very it is a as I said, after the end of the war, the Sri Lankan army expanded rather than demilitarized, which is um, which is quite extraordinary. La, it's the amount of security personnel per civilian in parts of the north and east are are extraordinary the army occupies all kinds of land which it calls high security land and really it also operates all kinds of commercial enterprises too so it, it's both playing a military and a commercial role in in Sri Lanka which is quite unprecedented but that's come out of the way in which a civil war was waged and the and post civil war now I think that really in that sense Sri Lanka is considered by um, many 
um, countries to be a solved crisis because the end of the civil war. So while the civil war was on, it was considered an ongoing war zone, and it was sort of ranked with, okay, there's Rwanda, there's Sri Lanka, <laughs> there, there's these intractable conflicts in the world, and Sri Lanka was ranked alongside that. Once the war ended, it sort of reinvented itself as this kind of business-friendly tourist paradise. And okay, there were these other things going on, but you know, forget that because actually Sri Lanka is a very, very an extraordinarily beautiful place to go as tourists and to and you know, and it's 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 actually a very easy place to be too. So there were all these reasons why the end of the civil war seemed to signal, okay, we're not going to talk about what goes on anymore. It's no longer in that category of intractable conflict. Conflict solved, Sri Lanka's fine. Let's you know, let, yeah. let, let's, get on, let's get on with it. And, you know, um, so that is, I, I, I mean, that's one reason it's, the, I mean, there has been some interest in Sri Lanka because, in, especially in the U.S., because of um, a perception of increasing Chinese influence in Sri Lanka. So between the U.S., for India, there's some concern about Sri Lanka as a kind of strategic Right. Um, it just no longer fits the stories. And as you know, as we've discovered in this hour, it's a very complicated story. It you know, it it doesn't render easily. And for a lot of Western countries, the end of the Civil War also signaled that you don't have to take refugees from Sri Lanka anymore. So there's also a very mm. in, there's a interest in saying, but that's solved now. You know, let's send people back. Yeah, they so no problem. I I, I understand that um, the Biden administration does have some interest in uh, Sri Lanka because of the way um, it's... I swear that my phone is on Do Not Disturb, so I have no idea why it keeps ringing. Um, I apologize to you and to everybody who's listening. Um but um anyway where were we um yeah so so biden um wants or his administration wants to use uh, sri lanka as part of its escalation against china what what can you tell us about that i mean this this is not necessarily my area of expertise so i don't i mean I'm not sure that I can give you the most informed answer on that front. I'm also very curious to see how how this develops and how there's a lot of um, controversy recently around the the kind of Chinese hold on the Sri Lankan port on, on the Sri Lankan port in southern Sri Lanka where they built it certainly the Sri Lankan state was no longer able to keep repaying the, and the contract means that China has the right of use of that port. Now recently there's been a standoff around the US asked Sri Lanka not to allow a Chinese vessel to embark there. And you know there's been sort of standoff around it. So I, 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 I think that this is one of the ways in which we can see some sort of future we see a geopolitical interest in Sri Lanka in, in as much as it relates to, to China and the U.S.'s fear of growing Chinese influence in Sri in, not only in Sri Lanka but in parts of Africa through its kind of infrastructural um, um, in investments. Yeah. And this is also how people are writing about it and, and debating it. But, you know, as I was saying, I think when you look at Sri Lanka's debt, for example, though it's mainly reported as it relates to China, China is not its only, it's not its only debt, um, for example. And undoubtedly, Sri Lanka itself has to also negotiate with, with, the, with the kind of, with sort of Chinese money in Sri Lanka. It has to negotiate with all kinds of money in Sri Lanka, but there have been these big infrastructural projects and what will come of it now if various different um, uh, foreign governments take an interest in uh, in controlling it, is is um, is is potentially an you know a kind of very incendiary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it's not just the port; it'll be it, there. Are, there are a variety of other 
sorts of big investments. Yeah. Let me ask you, we have uh, only about four minutes left or maybe a little less than that, uh, but I'm interested in your book, In My Mother's House, Civil War in Sri Lanka. I have read um, a... Um, a, a poem really beautiful by, and unfortunately I don't have her name, but a woman poet from Sri Lanka, which um, talks about the civil war and um, how, um, well, basically, like I said earlier, how it continues in people's hearts and, and uh, minds long after the war ended. And um, here you are in my mother's house, civil war in Sri Lanka. Tell us... Um, Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I mean, the book is actually an academic book about the civil war scene from the stories of two of its, its two, two northern minorities, so um, Sri Lankan Tamils from the north and Sri Lankan Muslims from the north. And it covers the, it, you know, so it's, it's about the relationship. It covers the events of the civil war, including mass displacement, so... You know, Tamils were displaced constantly throughout the conflict by the Sri Lankan state. Sri Lankan Muslims were displaced from the north, not only through conflict, but because they were ethnically cleansed out of the north by the LTT, the separatist um, guerrillas. So I can cover that and ask a question and talk about how generations relate to each other when you live in a war which lasts for so long that the landscapes and relationships around you constantly change. So how do um, how do um, generations relate to each other? What, um, how do families deal with death and disappearance? And that's what the book is in some ways about. Why, do, why did people become militants? What happened to them after they became militants? But the, I guess the title in my mother's house is a reference to something very specific. There's a, there's a famous essay by um, Anthony Appiah called In My Father's house Mm -hmm. which is about him traveling back to ghana after his father's um um, funeral so it's it's in some ways a reference to that but it's it's there's a there's there's a biblical quote too in in my father's house there are many rooms but for me what it really relates to is that um in the north where i'm from um houses pass from mother to to daughter in a way it's really about my own though i don't write about my mother who is who is tamil Mm-hmm. Um, it's about the house that I, it's a reference to the house that I grew up in, in northern um, Sri Lanka, where I'm from. And in some ways, it's a it's a it's about a reference to my mother, who's a very well-known human rights activist who I lived with, my sister and I lived with, and then who was assassinated when I was um, nine, oh. which is why um, why my sister and I left and joined our father, who is Sinhalese, and went to went to the UK as refugees. Yeah. So. So the, 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 in my mother's house, though it is an academic book, it is also about the fact that it's, as you say, it, it's a Sri Lanka and the war, it's always in my heart. Yeah. Well, Sharika, I'm afraid we are out and, of you know, time, so that but the, uh, thank you so much. Oh, and I'm sorry we didn't get to talk more about the, the Tamils. And I remember the Tamil Tigers actually being in the news, at least on the BBC at the time. Uh, but we can do it again. So um, um, we'll, we'll talk about it maybe another time. Thank you so much, Sharika Tiranagama, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Stanford University, President of the American Institute for Sri Lankan Studies, and as we just mentioned, the author of In My Mother's House, Civil War in Sri Lanka. Thank you very much, um, Sharika. And thank you, Richelle and Samir Kof. I'm Esti Dinor. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening.